Welcome back to another week of Rocky Mountain Surgery. This is Jason. And this is Allie. We have uh, a special show. God, how am I going to do this? This week on Rocky Mountain Surgery, we'll be talking with Dr. Robert McGeed, who's one of the thoracic surgeons here at the university. Over this past year, Dr. McGeed had a serious and unexpected health issue while away on vacation with the family and really near-death experience. And I think that, number one, his story is miraculous, and it's really changed, I think, the way he thinks about being a doctor via being a patient. And so we wanted to talk with him about his story and how that's kind of influenced his thoughts on doctoring and training future physicians. Now, given the topic of today's episode, we're going to skip our usual intro about things we did over the previous few weeks. I will add, though, we greatly appreciate if you could take five minutes of your time and find the link to our survey in the show notes. We've had some great responses so far, and we really appreciate that. These responses help us determine where to take the podcast next and some topics that we'd like to cover. We do this to try and and make the podcast as helpful to our listeners as possible. So if you'd please do that. And also, if you have questions, we know interview season and application season for residency is coming up. Feel free to email your questions to us at rmspodcast at outlook.com or reach out to us on Twitter at rmspod. Without further ado, let's hear from Dr. Robert McGee. Back to Rocky Mountain Surgery. We are here with one of our renowned thoracic surgeons, Dr. Robert McGee. Dr. McGee, recently during a family vacation in Australia, went from enjoying the beach to being rushed to the ER in a matter of hours after falling incredibly ill. Dr. McGee has agreed to share his recent experience as his as a patient and how that experience has changed his perspective towards patient care and a surgical practice. Briefly, Dr. McGee is an associate professor here at the University of Colorado in the Department of Cardiothoracic Surgery. Dr. McGee graduated from the School of Medicine at Brown University, and he then completed surgical residency at John Hopkins. He also received a master's in public health at Hopkins while uh, during his residency. In following residency, he completed a cardiothoracic surgery fellowship at the University of Washington, and he then joined the thoracic staff here at UCH. And in the name of full disclosure, Allie's husband and I both play ice hockey with Dr. McGee on the surgery department hockey team, and we're beyond grateful that despite his incredibly busy schedule, he has always found time to lace up the pads as our goalie each week. Dr. McGee, thanks for joining us. Jason and Allie, it's such a pleasure to talk with you guys. Um, I uh, cannot wait to get back to playing on the hockey team. Yeah, we're, we're looking forward to it. Thanks. All right, so to start, can you walk us through your memory of of what happened as best you can recall? Yes. Uh, So my family and I were on our uh, holiday over Christmas and New Year's visiting my cousin in Australia and his family. And um, we'd been in Australia for the just under a week of the planned two weeks. Um, On uh, the December 23rd, my family and I were on a, an island in the south of Australia, um, which has a lot of nature preserves, and we were seeing the kangaroos in the wild. And uh, that morning, we'd been at a beach where we were looking at some colonies of some endangered uh, sea lions, Australian sea lions, and walking on the beach and taking pictures and playing with my kids. I had, at the time, a four-year-old, and a, or just under four and just under one. Uh, my son wasn't yet walking. He was uh, 12 months, 11 months. 
um, and uh, spent the morning on the beach. Um, that afternoon, started to feel kind of crummy. Um, in fact, uh, we had to go shopping because of the um, upcoming uh, holidays of Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, and then Boxing Day celebrated in uh, British colonies. And so we went up to the supermarket, it was about uh, uh, 25 miles away from the house we'd rented. And uh, while my wife was in the supermarket, I sat in the car because I didn't feel real well. Uh, I felt like a cold was coming on um, and uh, um, ended up, uh, when she came out of the supermarket, I ended up climbing into the passenger seat and she had to drive back the 25 miles on these little winding roads. She'd never driven on the opposite side of the street, and, um, but I couldn't drive. I was feeling too crummy. Um, got back to our place. I took a, a nap. I lay down to take a nap at three o'clock in the afternoon on the 23rd of December. And, uh, I woke up around 6 a.m. the next morning. I just was totally out. Uh, was coughing and I'd been coughing all night and, uh, I've been coughing into tissues. And as the sun rose and I'm looking around the room, the, uh, tissues are covered in blood. And I cough into my hands because I've run out of tissues and I've got about two tablespoons of frothy, bright red blood in my hands. And I instantly recognized something really bad was going on. Um, started to uh, find my family. My wife had slept with the kids in another room because I was coughing so loudly all night. And uh, when I stood up, I realized my feet were numb and my hands were numb. And... Um, I realized that I was in shock and I could barely breathe. So I woke up my family um, by banging on the wall. I couldn't even walk around the wall, uh, walk around the doors. My wife came in. She helped me get some clothes on. Uh, she put the uh, our kids in the car seats of the rental car, and I climbed into the passenger seat. I could, couldn't even walk. I was I was crawling, and she drove up the wrong side of the road in the in the early dusk. Uh, excuse me, early dawn, um, and got us to the ER, which was 25 miles away back in the town where we'd been shopping. Um, when I walked into the ER uh, at this point, um, I just walked right past the triage nurse or front desk or whatever it was, right into the ER. And it was a small uh, room, two-room ER with a couple gurneys and two nurses. And these nurses looked up at me and looked at me like I was walking dead. I was ashen. My lips were blue. I could barely breathe. And I uh, was coughing up blood. And I, I said to them, guys, I can't breathe. I can't feel my hands and my toes. I'm coughing up bright red blood. Uh, I'm in shock, probably in septic shock. And I'm a physician back in the U.S. So they wouldn't think I was some crazy guy. They lay me down, put oxygen on me, monitored, drew some blood, called the ER doc and the anesthesiologist who lived a couple miles away in town. Now, they, this is a very rural... This is a very rural place. Uh, in uh, an island called Kangaroo Island, um, which is off the coast, south coast of Australia near Adelaide. Uh, and uh, this is the ER slash hospital for the whole island, which has a, a few hundred inhabitants. Um, and um, the, uh, yeah, they were, they were equipped to triage me very quickly, but not much more, unfortunately. Um, they did a wonderful job. Um, drew my blood. They told me what my labs were. My lactate was nine. My creatinine was five. I'd never had any health issues in the past. So this was pretty horrifying to hear. I didn't know if I was going to survive. I didn't think I could, I didn't know how long I'd be able to breathe for. The uh, anesthesiologist walked in and uh, my wife and kids were in the corner. 
And he said to me, we got, we have to intubate you. Yep. You sure do. Yep. Then he said to me, he said to my wife, kiss your husband goodbye. Mm-hmm. That's the last thing I remember. That was pretty scary. Um, I can't imagine saying that to a patient, by the way. Kiss yeah. your husband goodbye. Kiss your spouse goodbye. It's not quite how I phrase it. Mm-hmm. They did a great job. They intubated me, lined me up, um, uh, got a helicopter, uh, which flew me, intubated and sedated to the mainland to Flinders Medical Center, which is a uh, large academic hospital, largest hospital in the state of Southern uh, Australia or South Australia. And... Um, uh, put me up in one of their three intensive care units uh, and uh, um, treated me, recognized that I was in septic shock, likely pulmonary etiology, um, started me on broad-spectrum antibiotics uh, because of my uh, acute renal failure, started me in hemodialysis. Uh, By the time my wife arrived, my wife had to go back to the uh, rental house. She was kindly, she was in tears. She was kindly driven by the nurse who was coming off shift uh, back down to the rental house with the kids. Um, he played with the kids while she packed everything up real quick. They jumped back in the car. He drove her to the f- car ferry, got her tickets, got her on the car ferry. She took a car ferry over, um, met someone on the car ferry. She had no idea where she had to go. She had a two hour drive on the, from the car ferry to the hospital Had no idea where to go. It was besides herself with anxiety and what the hell is going on with her husband, you know? And, uh, and met a, uh, wonderful family on the car ferry who took care of her. And they were a big part of her, her recovery and my recovery in Australia. I still have never met them. Hmm. Wow. Um, my cousin from Melbourne dropped everything, flew down to Adelaide, and uh, met my wife in the hospital. They went to my bedside. I was on hemodialysis on a vent. Excuse me. Um, and... Um, she was with me at my bedside until we get back to the U.S. Um, within the next couple of days, I was uh, diagnosed with uh, Group A strep pneumonia in the setting of human metanumovirus, which is a human, which is the common cold. I probably got the cold from my son, who's one one year old. Mm. I know it was a cold at the time. And we'd been on a little domestic flight in Australia on a small plane, and and I can only imagine I got exposed to Group A strep somewhere in the airport or on the plane or something like that. Um, and my wife, uh, and that was three days prior, and my wife actually concurrently had developed strep throat. Um, mm. And my uh, daughter, who was just under four at the time, had um, developed otitis media. And one of the few things I remember from the drive up uh, from our rental house to um, the, the ER uh, was she said, after the doctor sees daddy, he's going to see me. And, and my wife asked why, and she said, because my ear hurts. Huh. And um, she was subsequently diagnosed with a perforated eardrum hmm. a few days later and, and uh, had uh, otitis media. Um, and so I can only assume that all of us were exposed, and thank God my uh, one-year-old son didn't get anything. Hmm. Um, the next thing I know um, that, that I'm aware of was December uh, 30th, around 7 a.m. And I had this horrible sensation in the back of my throat and opened my eyes. And a, an Australian uh, um, physician, a critical care physician, was waking me up. And, and he was tugging on my ET tube just to stimulate me. 
And boy, I'll never do that to a patient again. Hmm. That was the most awful sensation. So when you were in the ICU, do you remember? Nothing. Nothing. Nothing, except waking up on the morning of December 30th, 7 a.m. Robert, are you in there? Yeah, I'm here. I couldn't speak. I was intubated. Yep. Um, can you breathe? Yeah. I want to get the breathing tube out. Yep, so do I. We'll be back in a little bit to take the breathing tube out. Oh, man. I wanted them to take it out right then and there. They came back about three hours later. In the meantime, I started taking aware of my surroundings. It turned off my sedation. I was awake. Uh, minimal settings on the vent. My mom was with me. My wife shortly thereafter arrived. Uh, my mom had flown in from the U.S., got there uh, on Boxing Day, December 26th. Um, I learned my uh, family was staying in a rental house across the street that my cousin had set up. Um, my mom had come into town. My father was still recovering from recent abdominal surgery and pneumonia, so he wasn't in town yet. Um, I was alive. I was on hemodialysis. Um, they told me what the diagnosis was. My septic shock was resolving. Uh, they extubated me. and uh, It was tough to breathe at first, but it was great to be awake and alive. Spent the day in the ICU, couldn't drink anything. They told me they were de keeping me intentionally dry um, because of my uh, ARDS. I'm trying to get my lungs to work. Um, the, the next day, uh, I uh, was put into a wheelchair. Nurses took me outside. I could see my family. I saw my son. He learned to walk a couple days early. Mm. So I missed that. But everyone was well. My aunt and uncle had flown in where they lived in New Zealand to see me, which was great. Helped take care of the family. My wife told me all these wonderful stories of people she'd met along the way um, who had come out of the blue. She'd never met him before. Never knew her. Taking care of her. It was great. Really wonderful people helping out. I think that, you know, you're in literally a remote island on the most opposite side of the world. Yeah. And there are all of these pieces that came together with the addition of help from people who didn't know you guys at all. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It was amazing. The support my family received and I received through that was just unfathomable. So you, it was the 24th or it was the 23rd when you went to the ER? The that 24th day? is when I went to the ER, intubated, went to uh, Flanders Medical Center. The 24th by helicopter uh, was awoken on the 30th. On the 31st um, in the evening, we were sitting in bed and I was thinking, oh man, I'm getting through this, we'll watch the fireworks. We were meant to be in Sydney to see the fireworks with uh, family. Watch the fireworks on TV, maybe get discharged in a few days, uh, stick around town. Maybe I'll get to Seattle and hadn't planned on it. That wasn't part of the trip. It's good wine <laughs> tasting that area. That'd be nice. Go back to the U.S., get back to life. Um, on the night of the 31st, I was having more and more difficulty breathing. Uh, respiratory therapists were trying to get me to breathe harder and deeper. I could barely move the incentive spirometer. Nothing I could do. Take a deep breath. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember 
turning off the TV and just focusing from 11 p.m. to 6 a.m. breathing and couldn't take a deep breath. Um, and then uh, on the morning, when the ICU team came into round, they said, we, we need to intubate you again. I said, please don't intubate me. I didn't think I'd make it the second time around. Mm-hmm. But did you know that that was where things were headed? I mean, it's I feared kind it of, was. I feared it was. As a physician. And specifically a thoracic surgeon who... Yes, who has patients who I try to dodge from pneumonia all the time. And patients in ARDS occasionally, and critically ill patients, and lung transplant patients, and I, I, I feared it was heading towards that way. So they put me on non-invasive positive uh, pressure ventilation for ten minutes, and uh, that proved to everyone that I wasn't going to fly. So they reanimated me. It was very scary because this time I knew what I'd been through, and I wasn't sure what was going to happen. Um, reanimated. Lights out. Next memory I have is probably around January 22nd, back in the ICU here at the University of Colorado. Wow. And I know that between being reintubated yeah. and coming here, there was a lot that a lot happened. Of efforts on many people's behalfs. Um, I, uh, my wife started looking for a transport company. A lot of hitches in that. A lot of companies couldn't get me back to the U.S., couldn't get me out of Australia, couldn't fly overseas, couldn't fly over water. Um, she used all the resources she had to, to, at hand, uh, and she's excellent. She navigates uh, complex patient situations as a director of the multidisciplinary cancer clinics at the University of Colorado and as a nurse practitioner and uh, seeing her own clinics. And, and so um, she's phenomenal problem solver. Um, she uh, and my family and my friends rallied together and they got uh, a life flight set up. And uh, by then, Cheryl's twin sister had flown into town uh, with the kind support of uh, some family friends. Um, my dad had come into town to see me and, and head back home to recover from his hospital-acquired pneumonia that he was dealing with. Cheryl uh, and her sister flew uh, my uh, family back home to Colorado, um, and then my mother accompanied me. And on the 16th of January, we flew from Australia um, via numerous stops in the Pacific on small islands, including Hawaii, San Francisco, back to Denver. And uh, that flight was, I wasn't conscious for it, but... um, Logistically, it had an amazing uh, setup because there could have been a problem at any one of those places. I couldn't get dialysis. I was on a transport vent, uh, and there were limited resources in two of those places we had to land. And uh, a great friend of mine, uh, Dave Kuyama, came out to organize things. Now, Dr. Kuyama is a vascular surgeon here. He's actually been interviewed on our podcast before. Um, for the global surgery episode and all of his work with MSF. But you guys have known each other for years. We we were medical students. Um, He and I met doing sub-internships at Johns Hopkins Hospital when we were uh, medical students applying for residency. We were on uh, parallel surgical services, both matched at Johns Hopkins, both did our 
five years of general surgery at Johns Hopkins together, both uh, spent three years doing research um, at the same time uh, and kept in touch while we were both in that period of our life. Um, both did two-year trainings on different sides of the country. We summited Mount Rainier together hmm. when I was a cardiothoracic fellow at uh, University of Washington, when he was a vascular fellow at, at uh, Dartmouth. When I took the job here, um, I called him up and said there was a job for a vascular surgeon, and he took the job as well. So we've both been in parallel training for years. It's a very close close friend, it's hmm. a brother, brother of mine. I, you know, it's interesting. I didn't think about it until now, but probably his knowledge of how things work in other parts of the world was helpful in making all of those stops. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. And he contacted friends that he and I have had for years at various institutions um, and set up contingency plans should the plane be grounded or I need hemodialysis or my pulmonary condition worsen. And I had friends come out uh, uh, from. Uh, numerous institutions to provide backup that we thankfully didn't need. Mm, wow. Now, I know besides from Dr. Kuyama, yeah. he was not the only physician here who was involved in your care. By no means. Before coming back to the States. Yeah, yeah. Um, my wife was in immediate contact while she was getting from Kangaroo Island to Adelaide uh, with my partners, uh, Rich Schulich, the chief of surgery here, um, and uh, my family members um, and my partners contacted friends who had contacts in Australia. And, uh, and by the time my wife arrived to the hospital, before she'd even seen me or spoken with a physician taking care of me, she'd heard that my diagnosis was septic shock from pneumonia. Uh, she'd heard that I was stable and doing... Uh, and, and stable and controlled environment. Um, she'd spoken with my former uh, mentor uh, or, or mentor and former uh, 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 training surgeon, uh, Doug Wood, who's the chief of surgery at University of Washington, who had spent time in Australia and had contacts. Uh, a telephone chain had erupted through the surgical world and thoracic surgery and colleagues had called colleagues and friends and, and assured that I was doing okay. So that was wonderful. Medicine's a small world. It's a true uh, family. Yeah. Dr. McGee, do you remember in that time in the hospital in Australia, uh, that period of lucency, were there two separate voices almost, the, kind of the medical scientific voice and then this more human personal voice? I was only awake for uh, about two days, and I was focused really in that time on assessing what was going on. And once I'd realized things were stable medically, um, I focused on seeing what my family was doing and how my loved ones were. Um, it became apparent to me that I had narrowly averted not surviving and seeing my kids grow up and abandoning them as a father. And that was pretty scary to think that I would have left my family without being able to be there for their their growth um, abandoned my wife. I felt a great deal of guilt about that. Something that I'd never imagined as a uh, provider, hmm. you know. But it must be something that I'm sure patients. That, yeah, I'm sure other patients go through that, hmm. especially patients who are in a setting where they have no control, don't know what's going on, have limited experience and knowledge. 
So that has given me a great deal of appreciation for how scary it can be to be a patient in an uncontrolled setting where we as people are in environments where we have built control into the system so that we can control the environment. I can only imagine what most Mm. of our patients go through now. And their family members, we have no idea what their family members go through. Right. You know, I have taken care of my parents in medical environments. I've, I've interacted with families throughout my whole training and career. But until I was in the setting as a patient, not knowing what my family was going through, what they knew, what they were thinking, what decisions they had to make in my absence, it was even more, more difficult to imagine than it was when I was taking care of my parents mm-hmm. as a patient, as family member. And everybody in your family is in healthcare. Most people in family in healthcare. So in my immediate family. The way that people yeah. spoke to you or Cheryl or yeah. your parents is probably a little bit different than the way we speak to people who don't have um, medical knowledge. You're absolutely right. So Sorry. it's just I don't I honestly don't know what is scarier. Sometimes it's you know what you know and you know that you don't know. Um, but I'm assuming that both aspects of that are equally I think terrifying. Probably similarly terrifying because uh, patients really may not be well versed in what may happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, we spend uh, a great deal of time trying to educate them so they can make an informed decision as a shared partner in their care. And despite the best efforts we have, um, it's hard to know how well patients really can fathom what they're going through, what they're going to go through, and what could happen if things don't go as we want them to. Uh, And as you've known, my research for the past six years has been on trying to improve patient outcomes and help improve patients' assessment and awareness to make them a a partner in their own decision-making. But despite that, it is probably, uh, it's, it's incredibly difficult to assure a patient is well-versed so they can make those decisions. Um, and, and family members, same thing. They, they probably don't really know what the options are, mm-hmm. what might happen, right. what the best case and worst case scenario really are. I've certainly always thought how we communicate with patients and families is the hardest part of the job. Uh, anyone can learn the science, can learn the procedures, yeah. But those those soft skills when it comes to sitting down with the family and finding a way to communicate in a language that they can understand, uh, very complicated discussions, it's incredibly challenging. Now, is there something looking back that is just so glaringly obvious after the experience we went through that we overlook on a regular basis as physicians that we should be cognizant of on a daily basis. And maybe it's this, how we approach patients, but are there other aspects of it that, uh, from your experience, that we could be more cognizant of? I think we strive to understand what the patient's feeling and thinking and how the family is and what their understanding is. But again, so many factors go into determining that. And we truly, as as providers, as patients, as human beings, we don't know all of the factors that have shaped a person in their thought process, decision-making, interpretation, understanding, Um, and we don't know what they've been through. Uh, We can read a chart. We can interpret what we think is going on. We can try and get into their thought process to understand it somewhat, 
but it's impossible to truly understand where a patient's coming from. Um, and, and so, uh, I, I wish as providers, we could do a better job of knowing that mm-hmm. and helping guide patients and inform patients and facilitate them making decisions that are the right for ones for them. But at the same time, there's numerous challenges and, um, Ultimately, we'll never be able to be inside that patient's head and, and, and truly understand where they're coming from. But I think we really have to try as a, a profession, um, especially as a discipline within surgery, to understand that to help uh, facilitate patients making decisions that are right for them. And the challenge is, except for the occasional seminar in medical school or discussion of residency, I mean, we, these are not things that are frequently discussed by any means. No, they're not. And they are such an integral part of patient care. I mean, they can be the difference between, uh, from a from a interaction with providers, a good interaction or a not so good interaction. Uh, I, I do think that there is a little bit of a movement towards trying to integrate these things. I mean, it's a challenge because they are soft skills. It's difficult to study. It's difficult to understand, but... There does seem to be an interest in this, which is great to see. There is. There's a growing interest. I'm pleased to tell you I was at a surgical conference last weekend, just at the end of the the week ago, um, where a significant portion of the discussion was on how we can improve engagement with patients, improve patient education, Mm -hmm. um, and make them our partners in their care delivery as opposed to simply their consumers and we're delivering. So I'm excited. I think especially within surgery, we're moving in the right direction to create patient partners. And what I would say to to translate this to a lot of our listeners who are going to be pre-med or medical school, there is an old thinking of surgery being this thick-skinned field. And part of this podcast is really to try and counter that thinking or diversify who is interested in surgery. And so we certainly need a, a diversity of, of minds towards these softer skills and these interactions with people. And so uh, part of that is trying to fight that old thinking. You know, surgery needs a variety of, of minds and, and moods and interactions. And I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't use the word soft with a negative connotation. Mm-hmm. Like if you are a good communicator, that's going to make you that a is, better doctor. That is a critical skill in medicine. In life, but in medicine in particular. Yes, yeah, soft skills more refers to the difficulty in, in measuring it or assessing, or assessing yeah. it, not necessarily as in any kind of connotation. On They're qualitative, not quantitative, exactly. per yeah. se, in, in the empiric world we're brought up in, in medical school and training. By no means a pejorative. Now, also looking back, what do you specifically do differently on a regular basis, if anything, after this experience as it comes to approaching patients? Sure. That's a, that's a question that I don't think I fully know the answer to yet. And I'm sure this interaction will continue to, to shape my, this, this experience will continue to shape my interactions with my patients um, for the duration of my career. Um, it, it, though, it, though it has really emphasized to me the importance of engaging with the patient, um, not only in the perioperative environment where we see them in clinic, and in the operating uh, post-operative environment, um, but also in the long-term follow-up, and really being cognizant of what the patient's needs are and that they may be multidisciplinary and span just your expertise as a surgeon. 
in my recovery after being supine in the operate in the uh, ICU for five weeks on a ventilator on hemodialysis for three of those weeks, um, I then had to stand up and I had to start moving and I had to start reengaging and I had to start getting my brain wrapped around where I was and where I wanted to get back to and what was important to me. And um, those are important aspects that we as surgeons may not be the best people to take care of, but we can facilitate those. And um, I started working with physical and occupational therapy every day. And the first time I stood up, I fell down. And then two days later, I was walking a lap in the ICU and the physical therapist wanted me to just walk to the end of this pod and I wanted to walk twice as far because I wanted to start to re-engage myself to get back to where I needed to be and think about what was important to me. And um, so these support services that we may or may not engage for all our patients are critically important. Uh, and, and without these support services, respiratory therapy, physical therapy, occupational therapy, nutritionists, social workers, uh, rehab physicians and psychologists, resources that I didn't even utilize in my own patients on a regular basis. It became absolutely apparent to me how critical these are in the big picture of the patient's recovery, especially in critically ill patients. Um, and, and it was without them, I would probably still be sitting at home on the sofa watching TV, trying to figure out how to get back to being a surgeon. I was able to start back in clinic on August 2nd, excuse me, April 2nd, April 2nd, uh, after being discharged on February 7th and having walked for the first time in, in weeks on January 27th or something about that. Mm -hmm. And, and back operating and performing lung transplantation. And it is so wonderful and fulfilling to me as a surgeon and a physician to re-engage in my patients and to see my long-term lung cancer follow patients and to meet new patients. And it is so invigorating. Um, I'm hoping that my interactions with them now are a bit more meaningful to them and to me. They're definitely to me, but I'm hoping to them in that I'm able to engage in them a little better than I could before and try and see where they're walking, what they're, where they're walking in their shoes and figure out how I can better tailor my care to, to match their needs and their desires. Um, from an academic standpoint, it's pushed my research into patient-reported outcomes. We've been working on that for a while, and there's a movement nationally, especially in surgery again. And, and knowing if we're achieving the patient's goals and not just our goals for the patient. Hmm. Just because we take the cancer out, does it mean the patient's where they want to be or not? And, and that's something that's becoming increasingly important to me. And I suspect it'll be, I expect it'll be a critical aspect of medicine as we move forward and not just a pipe dream as to how to engage patients and measure this and, and improve upon it. So it's definitely shaped my life. Can I bring you back to the yeah. story? So yeah. the last we heard, you were here. There's clearly, here in our ICU. Yes. There's clearly something that happened between then and now with you talking to us here on the podcast today. Yeah, yeah. So... Tell us the exciting end to the story. Um, after waking up, knowing that I was back at home with my family. 
And you knew. We friends. Did you know that you were going to be coming back to Colorado, or did you just wake up in Colorado? I woke up in Colorado. I was not aware of it. I've seen photos. I followed the route on the flight in retrospect. Talked to a lot of people who helped take care of me, thank them. They can't imagine the things that gratefulness I really have, the gratitude that I really have for the, the help to my family and to myself by everybody. It's amazing. Um, the uh, recovery again was tough. I uh, woke up. When I started coming to, I realized I had a tracheostomy. When my one of my buddies came to see me, one of the otolaryngologists who I do airway surgery with came in to see me. I, he told me yesterday while we were doing a tracheal resection reconstruction that I he walked in and I swore at him. He said, <laughs> why I had a tracheostomy. How could I ever be a surgeon with a tracheostomy? And he reassured me the same way I reassure my patients that it's temporary. And this is part of the little, little road bump on the way to the big picture. And indeed, he was right. And um, again, working with our... our critical care team, including physical and respiratory and occupational therapists, dietitians, got me back to a state where I could start walking, get out of the ICU. Took my first shower in 29 days. I wept while I was taking that shower. Mm -hmm. Couldn't stand. I was on oxygen. Felt the best thing in the world Hmm. was to take a shower after 29 days of not knowing if I'd be alive. Um, we, uh, one memorable event, this wonderful nurse taking care of me in the ICU, <laughs> Nurse Haley. She arranged for my shower, um, wheeled me to it, her and a medical assistant, let me take a shower. The next day, we got a, took one of my, the consultation rooms where I see my patients after surgery. It was a Sunday, wheeled me over to it. My family was there. My wife, my kids, they uh, spent several hours while all my kids climbed on me. It was wonderful to see my kids. My son was now one. He could walk. He could start to run. <laughs> my daughter had been by my bedside in Australia. She had been drawing pictures of me healthy and me sick. Showed me the pictures. Showed me where I wanted to go. They all reminded me of what we're doing this for. And not only for ourselves, but for our patients to get them back to their goals. Mm-hmm. Um, when I went home, I, I, prior to going home, I spent a week on the inpatient rehab unit, doing physical therapy, working with occupational therapists, making sure I could stand, make sure I could walk, move around safely, take my own shower, shave, do all the things that we take for granted with the goal of getting me back to the place where I can do all the things that I want to do, not just the things I need to do. We're still working on it. I'm hot. I'm operating, taking call. That's great. Playing with my kids, playing soccer with my daughter, running around with my son, swimming with them. Um, been on a hike, not yet ready to do 14ers. <laughs> hopefully soon, hopefully this uh, summer, this fall. Not yet back to playing hockey with the team. They won the championship without me. <laughs> Got to get back to playing so we can win a championship together. Uh, it's going to take a while. There's a lot of fine points that are required for all those skills that, that uh, I've got with my arms to operate. But my brain, thankfully, never suffered. But uh, not quite ready to play hockey. We'll get there. 
But um, again, thinking of the big picture of to where you need to go to, where we want to get our patients back to, where I want to get back to. It's not just leaving the hospital. You know, it's not just surviving the operation. Uh, it's not just avoiding complications. It's, it's really resuming the quality of life that we live for. Are your conversations before you take a patient to the operating room electively different when you talk to them about what, the, what they want? Yes. In what way? Undeniably. I've refocused on what is it that is important to them and, and what do they need and, and want to have the quality of life that they have before mm-hmm. surgery or they had before they got sick. So we can figure out how to get them back there. And again, not just get them through the operation or, or treat the symptoms, but get them back to the quality of life that is uh, what we are all alive for. I mean, when you say it, it sounds so simple, but absolutely, I mean, we overlook that on a daily basis. I mean, it's profound, but... We're so focused on acute patient care mm-hmm. as surgeons, the, the treatment of the patient, their uh, coming through the operation, their gratitude and our gratification for treating the disease that they're here to see us for, uh, that I think we lose sight of the, and we're not necessarily primed to look at the big picture of, of what is it that we live for as patients and as providers, and how do we need to get patients back to where they want to be? Wow. Well, Dr. McGee, to close out, is there is there any other piece of advice or, or something you want our listeners, whether they're pre-med or medical students or trainees, to take away from, from your experience? Think about what is important to you in life and make sure you can achieve that. Don't let life slip by without doing those things. Um, patient care is wonderful. It is incredibly rewarding. I am, uh, I love my patients. Um, love what you do and choose a profession and discipline within medicine that lets you enjoy what you do. Uh, and listen to your patients. Uh, they'll tell you why they're seeing you. They'll tell you what's wrong and they'll tell you what you need to do and where they want to be. So you can figure out how to get them back to where they want to be. Well, geez, I think it goes without saying, but I'll say it. And I think I speak for everyone in the surgical family here and those who've worked with you and trained with you. Uh, we're incredibly grateful to see how well you're doing and that you're healing up and back to doing the things you love, both in work and in play. And thank you so much for sharing this experience with us. I'm happy to. I hope that it's a learning experience for everyone, not just for myself and my family. And uh, again, I'm, I'm grateful for all the the help that I've received from so many people, some of whom are close friends, some I've never even met before and look forward to meeting. Uh, it's been it's been an incredible experience. I hope no one ever has to go through it themselves, um, but it, it definitely has been uh, an undeniable shaping force in my life in the past year. Thank you, Dr. McGee. Thanks for your time, too, and, and the listeners, thank you for your time. What a story. Yeah, so actually, we went offline and talked a lot about patient-centered outcomes after uh, our discussion uh, with Dr. McGee, and it, it, it just illustrates for us that there's another aspect that we often forget on a regular basis that is as integral to the outcomes for a patient 
uh, as all of the studies we do, all of the procedures we do, understanding what the patient hopes for their care and what the family hopes out of or for an outcome is just as important as our our general goals as well. It's interesting when we were talking about quality metrics, Dr. McGee was like, you know, I work with patients as part of my quality research group. And a guy in there was like, you know, I kind of don't care what the UTI rate of the hospital is. I want to know, are patients able to go home after surgery? Are they able to be independently mobile? These kind of things that have really escaped us um, in quality research. So. I just want to reiterate something I said during our discussion with Dr. McGee that surgery benefits greatly when we have a diverse set of minds. And so if anyone suggests that maybe you have a, a softer personality, and I don't at all say that as a pejorative, uh, that actually is a, a positive advantage to go into surgery because we need people of, of all sorts of backgrounds and all sorts of minds. So never let someone try and suggest that that's not a case because your ability to interact with your patients and really connect with them is a huge advantage. And we, we desperately need more providers who can do that. Another thing I think this brings up is that this is not necessarily something that is explicitly taught via curriculum in medical school. So as a medical student on your clinical rotations, whether you're sub I or an MS3, please insert yourself respectfully, if possible, into these situations where you're seeing people have goals of care conversations, conversations about quality of life, about what's important to patients, about how to deliver bad news, because it's such a phenomenally important part of your job, no matter what kind of doctor you become. And then the other thing I would say is <clears throat> try and learn from not only the good, but also the bad, because I think they can both inform your practice in a good way. You'll definitely see both sides of that coin. Well, I, I certainly won't forget this discussion uh, for a very long time. And of course, we are so happy to have the opportunity to talk to Dr. McGee today. So we thank him. Yes. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you.